Dr. Lindsay Everman. I'm a faculty member at Indiana State University and the program director of our doctorate in athletic training program. I'm here with two of my colleagues to talk about best practices for spine boarding the, um, the spine injured athlete, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi everyone, I'm Beth Neal. I am the clinical education coordinator at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, I'm Dr. Lacey Runyon, and I'm the Clinical Education Coordinator at Carroll University in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Awesome. So we're here today to talk about the spine injured athlete and how best to treat those patients. It's really important that this podcast is supplementary commentary to previous instruction that you've all uh, engaged in um, in previous weeks. So this is not a substitute for that. It's important to get into the literature, observe the clinical practice techniques, and if given the opportunity and to have the availability to practice those techniques, we really encourage you to do that as well. But this is really just supplementary commentary to kind of provide a historical perspective and some clear instruction on what, what to do as you start to embark on establishing protocols, engaging with other healthcare providers, and um, making sure that you and your colleagues are delivering the best practice or best guidelines uh, to each and every patient who is spine injured. So Beth, if you wouldn't mind starting with new updates or recent changes within the literature relative to, to spine boarding. Yeah, so from within athletic training, oftentimes we'll guide our clinical practice based off the National Athletic Trainers Association position statements. And for the spine injured uh, patient, the last one that has been published was in 2009. Um, so typically these are redone within every 10 years. Um, so we are just past that. Um, there's talk um, amongst the membership that a new one is coming out um, in the near future, not uh, with no real word of what that exactly means, um, but with some updated information, updated research within it. Um, we do know that there was a um, consensus statement put out in 2015 that was additionally altered um, as far as the um, pre-hospital management for spine injured athletes. And um, that was actually uh, removed from the website from the National Athletic Trainers Association um, something that a lot of, uh, of the members may not have realized that occurred, um, but it's important to know that that document is no longer supported. And so um, it's something that we need to think about when we're um, talking about what we're using as far as um, guidelines for um, spine boarding. And so real quick, why do you think that the, that particular statement was removed? So when it initially came out, it had some pretty strong verbiage as far as that um, all and every equipment should be removed for any equipment-laden athlete. And um, that caused some uproar within um, various state regulations and um, emergency medical services um, based on their protocols. Um, a little bit later, it was then um, softened to where it said that the athletic trainer may remove the equipment, um, which actually is something that aligns um, from the 2009 position statement where it does allow the athletic trainer the option to remove the equipment. Um, and so that was definitely a response to um, what everyone had said as far as like if counties or um, uh, EMS were be, would be able to support the um, athletic training position statement that was out. So it's really interesting. It was more a function of 
um, not being sure that our membership was actually trained to do some of the techniques. And therefore the decision was made to uh, soften the language because the reality is, is there's very little control of both the NATA and I would argue the BOC on ensuring that athletic trainers who are currently uh, currently credentialed are demonstrating particular skill sets. We saw the same kind of phenomenon with rectal thermometry as it was being introduced into the profession. Although I would have to say the, uh, the collective voice that really pushed that, um, that particular skill and the need for that skill was very powerful at the time. And so it's interesting that uh, we kind of took a step back on the spine boarding perspective, especially given the success of, I would say, the eventual success of um, those that really lobbied for um, best practices for heat stroke management. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there. And I think the other thing that um, is a little bit concerning and um, information that I love getting out to um, practicing clinicians is that oftentimes they have um, this verbiage or this um, document cited within their emergency action plans um, because of um, previous work that they have done and or saving documents online and not realizing that the um, document was no longer supported or available on the uh, main website. And so that's something that athletic trainers need to take into consideration from a legal standpoint um, of using um, information that's no longer technically um, current and published. So definitively, what is your recommendation for the best practices we should um, we should be implementing given any particular situation, number of personnel or resources available? Yeah, so um, ideal if a patient is um, supine, the best possible lift with the least amount of motion from literature is what was formerly known as the six-man lift, now known as the eight-plus lift. Um, rather than having to roll the patient and having some adjustments um, and or people moving at different rates, um, they're actually shown to have less um, cervical and thoracic motion um, within it. Additionally, it's typically a little less burden for the clinicians um, when you're able to have that many people around. Now, the one challenging thing is that you're not always gonna have eight healthcare providers around or eight people that you have trained that would always be together that would be able to help you. Um, so there, there are times that the um, supine log roll has to be used. Um, if a patient is prone, um, there's typically two options of a prone log roll push or a prone log roll pull. Um, I notice a lot of times when I teach this topic to students or clinicians, um, oftentimes if people have previous knowledge, um, most people have learned about the prone log roll pull. Um, more than the prolongal push. Um, however, according to the literature, there is less motion um, in the thoracic spine when you do the prolongal push. So rather than pulling the patient closer to you onto the board, you're actually pushing them out. Um, still requires the same amount of um, clinicians or trained personnel. And so my recommendation obviously is that you need to first go with what you've practiced with your staff, um, as well as your um, directing physician and potentially the EMS in your county. Um, but if you have the opportunity to work with them to refine the skills, that if you can do that prone law road push um, and get really good at it, it actually is better um, for the betterment of the patient at that time. 
think realistically, um, coming from a secondary school setting here um, several years ago, uh, a lot of the problems um, and issues that arose for myself as a clinician as we considered spine boarding techniques were um, making sure that we had the opportunity to work with and train our EMS staff because um, there's oftentimes that collaborative role that takes place when they when they're brought out onto the field or onto the court to uh, perform that spine boarding situation. And so it's really important. Uh, many of them had not uh, had training in uh, newer techniques that weren't log roll or um, even the log roll push versus log roll pull. And so I think you just need to really further emphasize that the, the practice part of that is going to become really, really important, um, not just with the people at your institution, but with that, those uh, EMS providers as well. Great. So it sounds to me like even though we have some definitive evidence that supports particular techniques, what it really comes down to is establishing protocols. And we need to do that in advance, discussing with EMS and our director and physician, as well as practicing. What are your recommendations for the process of establishing those protocols and making sure that there's regular practice with EMS? I think um, as with any policy development, first and foremost, um, we need to go ahead and identify who our key stakeholders are going to be. Um, so identifying who at the institution or at the school or at the, uh, at the hospital setting is going to be important. And then also who, uh, who the other outside stakeholders might be, such as EMS staff, things like that. And getting all those people involved as they sort of work to develop that policy. I think also too, alongside of that, it's important to make sure that you practice often with those who may have a little less experience. So I'm thinking specifically the athletic training students that will be at your clinical sites potentially. Um, sometimes this is something that they may rotate in or out and the time practicing with EMS may not have been a time that they were at that clinical site. So ensuring that they are um, up to date, that they are well, um, versed on the protocol that you have at that specific site because they are moving around quite frequently and so making sure that they are comfortable with what you're doing. Um, one thing that I uh, did when I was practicing full-time clinically is that we actually created a number system for clinicians and students and so um, each person, depending on um, where they would be at in, regarding the process of spine boarding, had a number. And so everybody knew that if they were number two today, that this is the specific tasks that they were required to do. If they were number three, they knew they were having to get certain things. And so um, it was very helpful for the students to ease their mind on what would be potentially a very stressful situation that happens live because they knew exactly what their role was and there was no confusion on anyone's part. Um, and it definitely helped from uh, planning and organizing um, and managing a situation point. Yeah, for us in our experience here in Terre Haute, we had the opportunity to practice multiple times. We made it an annual activity. And I think one of the things that was most successful was sharing evidence within the sports medicine community with our colleagues in, uh, with our colleagues in EMS. Their standard protocols often uh, are pretty rigid and they're based on almost always based on motor vehicle accidents and so the need to remove equipment or the need to move a patient in a particular way has often been associated with that kind of patient because that's the patient they see most often now the reality is that this, they practice the technique of spine boarding far more frequently than we do because they're doing that every day so finding some compromise and establishing what is best simply based on how, uh, what's best for the patient, but also based on 
experience and how often you're practicing is really, I think, sets your team up for success. I think sometimes, particularly with clinicians new to a physical environment, we're often pressured to engage in healthcare so quickly. Uh, I think of the secondary school athletic trainers hired and in, in is not really permitted to start their job until August. And that, of course, is when all the patients arrive. And so establishing protocols, establishing policy, practicing techniques sometimes gets lost or pushed by the wayside because we're too busy focused on making sure no one gets hurt or even, uh, you know, has a heat related illness in that first few weeks of preseason when what we really need to do as hospital systems and uh, employers as school systems provide athletic trainers with the necessary time to establish protocols and make sure that they're in good interprofessional collaborative communication with other providers. I really wish this was the, the standard of, of practice in athletic training because we really set people up to, to fail and to fail their patients, which is the hardest part. Yeah, I definitely agree with everything you said there. I think one of the um, most important things, um, as you said, is when you have that relationship set up with EMS, you're gonna reduce some of that confusion of who's in charge once they get there. So this is often one of the questions that I'm asked whenever I um, give lectures or work on continuing education within spineboarding um, from clinicians and students is, so who's in charge once EMS gets there? And I think when you have that um, pre-existing relationship. And um, as Dr. Eberman said, um, when we had that set up in Terre Haute, um, the times that I had to provide medical services there went so much smoother because I knew what EMS expected of me and they knew what I, ex um, and vice versa. And so um, it allowed um, me to actually stay at the uh, head of the patient during this time and for the, the most smooth transfer of care to occur. And I only believe that that was based off of our previous relationship and our previous time practicing together. So definitely something if, if you're not doing that frequently with your um, county EMS, make sure that um, you're doing it. Um, another thing too is if you're working as a per diem athletic trainer and you're going from county to county, it's really important to know that there can be differences um, within those counties and so not just assume that um, because one thing's the same even though it's only 15-20 minutes away, there could be a vastly different protocol that you see um, at that neighboring county. Great. So I think the last message we really want to hammer home is what happens when you do have to spineboard a patient. The, uh, the need for critical, rev critical review and the debriefing process are really important. One-on-one -on -one debriefing can really help you in terms of managing um, your emotional response to a traumatic incident. And you can do that obviously with a colleague, but it's also important to understand that there are unbiased uh, members of the athletic training community through the AT CARES organization. Uh, as well as often um, critical incident stress management um, programs, often through hospital systems or within healthcare systems that can also support you following a traumatic incident. But the other piece after managing your own emotional response is to think about how effectively the emergency action plan was executed. And so that really requires a critical review to ensure that you've um, use the best evidence, followed the protocol, uh, evaluated whether the outcome was truly positive for the patient. Um, in the event there was a negative outcome, really bringing peers in to evaluate and uh, ensure that that doesn't happen again. 
And a lot of that requires vulnerability in our practice and uh, the ability to really critically analyze an incident. And sometimes that means we, we need to bring in our colleagues to, to see things through a different lens than maybe we see them. Absolutely. I think, um, especially as a young professional, um, one of the things I, I didn't feel like I had at the time, and again, this was 10 plus years ago, was when I had a critical incident like that, I didn't feel like I, I had that group of people up front. And so it was really um, endearing that the hospital system that I have, we actually established that. Um, unfortunately, after the fact for me, I did survive those um, types of situation, but um, I think further emphasize the importance of what the hospital system um, itself could establish something so that they have that critical uh, uh, critical review opportunity, but also the debriefing because uh, it can be very traumatic for the healthcare provider to um, kind of go through that situation, but then also have people to support them, but then have people to um, help them understand the process um, just from the critical review standpoint of um, is what we established actually working for us, for the EMS, um, and for our patients overall. And so um, I just look back on that and think of how many things I could have changed and would have changed and how glad I am that the hospital system actually came in and supported those other young professionals that were coming in. This is something that I'm really um, passionate about just because um, it's something that I've had to personally deal with. And so um, having been the person who had typically taught this to uh, or with the county um, EMS and the athletic trainers and having um, also provided debrief support for um, peers that I had worked with, um, having that moment of realizing that, you know, skill decay and knowledge decay can happen over time and that I need to ensure that I'm keeping my skills up. And when um, those incidents actually had happened, um, it was really important to have those um, colleagues and people that I knew that I could reach out to um, could talk through the situation because as much as I was prepared and was fine um, performing the um, skills and giving the patient the best care possible, that does um, tend to potentially wear on you a little bit of like, is the patient going to be okay? Did I do everything I could for them? And so um, actually being in those shoes, I think, has helped me um, become a better mentor and support of those around me who are doing it and realizing that the emo these emotions are real even when you know what you're doing and even when you do things correctly it's still um, something that a lot of people tend to internally reflect upon during these times. Well great thanks so much for taking the time to talk about these things I know it's really helpful for all of our students to get a historical perspective and an overall global view. It's hard sometimes reading a, one single research article or a position statement and figuring out how to apply that. So I think coming together and, and summarizing the relevant information is really helpful to them. So thanks so much.